bring in about a thousand new clients a year from our organic traffic until a year and a half ago, we only had one inbound salesperson to handle all of that. The flywheel worked and we invested everything else into the product, which was our core strategy. Make the product better, make the writing better, and the customers will come. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Steve Pakras, CEO at Verblio, a technology-powered content creation platform with a network of over 3,000 US-based writers. They serve over 1,500 agencies and businesses every month, doing 12 million in annual recurring revenue. In this episode, we talk about the power of playing in a fast-growing market with a differentiated business model. And we discuss how Verblio differentiates with a high-volume, high-quality content. Let's get into it. The business started in a different way than most marketplace businesses did, which is actually from the supply side, which is the journalist CEO, his name is Scott Yates, was looking for opportunities for his fellow journalists to have opportunities in the freelance world. And where would those be? Well, SEO content would be one of them. And the technical co-founder, Wade Green, was looking at new ways of making marketplace systems using true marketplace dynamics. A lot of the competitors out there are using more of an outsourcing model and extending that more towards using freelancers as outsourcers instead of employees. And how do you use more marketplace dynamics in order to deliver true a true system? So it started in from the supply side in 2011, focused on the problem of SMBs need to compete in SEO. How do you give them the opportunity to do so? And at a time where just putting words on any page got Google to find you very quickly at the very early days of SEO. And so they had a a monthly subscription product, which was $79 a month for four blogs, all delivered on Thursday. And I think the tagline of the company at the time was working like a dog to fill your blog. (laughs) All right. We've come a little ways. Okay. I mean, it's catchy. (laughs) Thanks. And so I was in the really fortunate place where when I moved back to Colorado, which is from Silicon Valley in 2010, that Wade and Scott were looking for someone to take over the business who knew how to scale marketplace SaaS businesses, was locally based, uh, who loved marketing and who loved finding new opportunities for freelancers. Mm-hmm. Was the business designed from the get-go to be kind of a tech-enabled services marketplace or did it just slowly morph that way and started out as a you know more traditional agency? Forty to fifty percent of the budget went into tech and product from the very beginning to build these out, so that we were building something that was much more tech than services. And some of the core principles that they built in are kind of interesting on the market dynamic side. And so, probably the most important principle of the Verblio platform is that writers choose the clients. And in doing so, you make much more of a marketplace system. In almost all other services kind of marketplaces, there is a command and control model where the the freelancers get allocated projects based on what they qualify for, what their availability is. But if you invert that incentive structure, then the freelancer, the writer, is looking for opportunities where they're fit. They only get paid if their piece of work is accepted by the end client, which means they take on more risk for this. And in doing so, they deliver projects much more quickly. So our average turnaround time is two to three days for a project, which is very different than seven to 30 days for most companies. They have a higher quality level because they're more motivated, more excited, and need to be a good fit in order to keep going. 
And there's a lot of other intangibles as well. One of them is the ability to have excess capacity in your system that you don't pay for. So we have the ability to go up 20 to 30 to 80% new capacity with our existing model because of the way these guys built it into the system. The, the end value that you promise to the customer is, is still content. Yes. The difference versus content agencies is just how do you source it, how, how it gets produced. That's about right. One of the other differences, we don't do content strategy. We lean on the agencies to use that as their level of expertise. But the end product that we're producing is we are sending content directly to our clients in any format that they're looking for. Who are you considering your competition? Our biggest competition, if the content marketing industry right now is $10 billion a year and it's moving towards $38 billion in the next decade, are internal writers that is basically internal capacity that internal marketers don't feel comfortable in outsourcing as yet or don't know that there's quality providers that can do it at scale and actually write for your content. I would say that is by far our biggest, is winning over those clients because it hasn't been proven that there's good players in the space who can deliver that yet, and that's what we're laser-focused on. The second one is concept of status quo for marketers, which is content is still, while it's an old marketing channel, using content in an innovative way to really differentiate yourself or give your company a giant moat is new. So we have a client that does 1,200 unique articles with us. We have another client that just signed up to do 17,000 articles in three months. As a new company, newly funded by venture capital, in order to really set themselves apart. So I'd say our two big competitors are really kind of intangible. We're competing against the quality of in-house marketers and the status quo of not moving. And the status quo of not doing more content, because you can do a lot more now at quality than you could before. And then there's this whole group of competitors that are playing with similar models, and those include crowd content and writer access and text broker and other companies that are trying to find a way. Those guys are delivering a similar type of value. And then you have the Upworks and the Fivers where you could go source an individual freelancer if you don't want to use our SaaS platform to deliver content and access to the broader pool of talent. The content marketing space is extremely saturated. There are just so many content agencies out there and about a million content writers to stand out in this massive sea of providers that all pretty much look the same. Companies need to define what makes them different. We learned a few ways a SEO-focused content marketing agency, Siege Media, is setting themselves apart from founder and CEO Russ Hudgens on a previous episode of How to Win. Early days, we started as just another vanilla SEO agency. We've stayed ahead in terms of adding service lines that other people might not be willing to invest in yet that allow it, have slowly also allowed us to move up market over time as well. And that's kind of a, a moat that we feel like we're establishing in terms of we're, we are large, so we're reliable to bigger brands because of that. We paid for a premium website that I think also reflects an upmarket message. We have good brands on roster that we continue to add over time, which again, kind of reinforces that from a compounding snowball point of view. And those kinds of things have moved us up. What are you doing to stand out in this you know, massive sea of providers that all look pretty much the same? Yeah, all services areas are a really hard place to compete. So first, we're trying to be the talent magnet for top freelancers. We're, we're paying premium rates. Being a verbally a writer is really different. We accept about 4.5% of our applicants, and it's an exclusive group, and they have forums and uh, opportunities to move forwards. 
and they get to pick their own work. So one of the areas of being a freelancer that's always kind of a grudge is if if you're an in-house writer and you have to write 200 blogs about waste management every single month, you've got about two months in you before you can't take it anymore. So one way we're trying to stand out is to attract the best talent and make this the best place for the writers to go. Another is the scalability of the platform. The concept of quality is a really hard one. It's super intangible and it really depends on your view of, of content quality. We need to be better than what you're expecting. So we need to be better than your alternate options. And that's different for different companies. But we put a lot of our technology platform and our business model into how to deliver uh, higher premium content at scale in a way that we think is unique and really can help us stand out. And the third is brand. We really focused on building this Verblio brand. We rebranded three years ago. Our content is fun and engaging. You should laugh at least a few times on every page of our website. We want to be the friendliest content creation platform and the people to work with. So some of that is part of brand and part of it is if you're in a services business and part of our business is you want to have the best people that all the other top people want to work with and you want them to refer you to everybody else that you talk to. So brand reputation too. Mimi Turner has said that if B2C marketers thought like B2B marketers, Coca-Cola would market itself as brown, fizzy, and sweet. That's so true. And soon a competitor would likely emerge with an all-in-one brown, fizzy, sweet drink. Most B2B companies sell themselves by narrating a fact sheet. We do this and that and the third thing. They tend to focus solely on product capabilities, features, rational outcomes. The problem with that approach is that most competing products are nearly identical. Pretty much every CRM, marketing automation tool, or project management software has every feature. They also say the same things about themselves. If the marketer's job is to get their product into the very limited consideration set of category buyers, then reading the fact sheet out loud is not going to do it. Climate scientists thought that when they bring evidence and facts in front of the public, people will instantly get it and do what's needed. Boy, were they wrong. But here you are, trying to persuade your audience with facts. What you need on top of the facts is a story, a point of view, a narrative to frame the context for your capabilities. David Phillips, author of How to Avoid Death by PowerPoint, shares an example of selling power of storytelling. In 2009, a journalist by the name Rob Walker wanted to find out if is storytelling really the most powerful tool of all? He went on his computer and he bought 200 objects from eBay. And the average price of the objects were about $1. He then called 200 authors and he asked them, hey, would you like to be part of the significant object study? Which means that I would like to write a story to one of the objects. And 200 authors said yes. So there he had 200 objects, he had 200 stories, and I assume that it was with nail-biting anticipation that he went on eBay again with all the 200 objects. Would there be a difference? Would there be a change? One of the objects was this beautiful horse's head. Now, this beautiful horse's head was bought for 99 cents and was sold when the story was added for $62.95 dollars. That is a slight increase of 6,395%. So was this a one-off situation? Not really, because he bought the 200 objects for a total of $129, selling them for $8,000. Until last year, we are, we're a content marketplace that is focused on how to drive 
customers to you through writing great content, and that is our primary driver by far. We think it works. We bring in about a thousand new clients a year from our organic traffic until a year and a half ago, we only had one inbound salesperson to handle all of that. The flywheel worked and we invested everything else into the product, which was our core strategy. Make the product better, make the writing better, and the customers will come. Our other channels that we're developing more now is really kind of our first level of lead gen. Uh, We hired our first SVP of sales and business development just over a year ago. And we have two BDRs. And here's our hard part is our, our ICP is digital marketers that want to go bigger with quality content. And that is a really hard thing to really target. And so we are going to kind of their watering holes, like the Slack channels where they hang out, the sponsored events. And when they start talking about interest in content is when we reach out to them as opposed to reaching out cold to a list. And that's been doing very well for us. Would you say then SEO content marketing is uh, is number one channel? Like 95% number one channel. 95%. I just looked up your domain authority, domain ranking in Ahrefs is, uh, is like 65. So, I mean, it's decent, but it's not fantastic. Would it be fair to say that it's enough in your arena and you mentioned the size of the content marketing industry and as, as it's growing super rapidly that you're also fueled by just pre-existing demand for content it's really important how we rank versus kind of like the other the other competitors they'd be looking for, which is the critical factor for us. And then we are riding a great wave. We think we're growing faster than other players in our space by a lot, by leaps and bounds. But man, we're riding a great wave. This uh, The last stats that I read was growing from $11 billion to $38 billion in 10 years for content. Uh, and that's a great place to be. Riding the wave. Like it or not, Timing is crucial for company building. When you enter a market that is growing rapidly, it will pull you up. You don't even have to be that great. If there's a lot of demand out there for what you're offering, you'll grow fast. I see this again and again as a key driver of growth for some of the fastest growing companies. I'm sure the marketers at those companies would often like to take credit for all that, and they do deserve some. But when you look closely to what they're doing, it's nothing special. The category itself was typically growing at a rapid pace. You could be doing five times better, more creative marketing in an industry with low demand and get nowhere. Timing. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you can pay attention to macro trends and be deliberate about timing. Rapidly growing categories, of course, attract a lot of competition. In the early phases, all the pieces up in the air and there's a massive land grab happening. If you get the timing right, execute fast and well, you can become a top three name in the space. Get inside that consideration set. But if you're a little late to the party, you need to focus on differentiation or radically reimagine a segment of said category. What is the product strategy here? Are you trying to compete on best or uh, are you also cheaper than some of the other players? So we are not cheaper. So the product strategy is not to compete on price, but to compete on value and things that other companies can't do. There's a lot of it focused on what the content is and how we drive that through our writer community. And so those will be algorithms of which writers get shown which part of the product, the user experience of how to deliver, how to enhance content with SEO optimization, things like that, how to break down our our subject matter expertise. So we have 40 verticals that we write to and getting smarter and smarter about our matching algorithms. So there's a whole host of product initiatives that are there. Then we just have the user experience of managing that much content and editing back and forth. Imagine editing 1,200 pieces of unique content for a digital marketing agency that is writing for 100 clients, 
all of their clients have to be able to approve each piece of content on our white label platform before afterwards, has to be SEO optimized, has to be turned into videos, has to be posted directly on their CMS. So there's a lot to it. If you're going to grow from $11 billion industry to $38 billion, it means that everything is about to get even more competitive. If there's 6 million new blogs every day, they're going to have to get better. They're going to have to be more interesting. There's going to have to be unique growth in order to stand out in these channels. Being uniquely good at something is what propels your company to success. Companies should ask themselves, what's the value only we can deliver? What's our onlyness? 95% of what a company does is not unique. The magic is only in the 5%. Businesses should get clear on what their 5% uniqueness actually is and double down on it. If you're not clearly differentiated, that's a problem, and most aren't. But set a goal to be able to hold a fundamentally different position in the market. Build a vision of what a unique version of you could look like and start building toward that. Andrew Grove, former CEO of Intel and author of Only the Paranoid Survive, explained the benefit Intel saw from choosing to focus on a unique specialty when they began to feel pressure from competitors. Back in the mid-80s when we almost died and went through our strategic inflection point and we came out of it with a very strong and very controversial decision that we will focus on microprocessors first, second, and third. And we got to put the best development of microprocessors and we're going to invest in the best microprocessor factories, in the best microprocessor design tools, and this worked for us. We have not merged with anyone. We have not bought a Hollywood studio. We have not done any of these things. We are a very, very maniacally focused company on microprocessors. That's all. No more to it. How has the strategy, your business strategy, changed and evolved, let's say, over the last five years? When I first took over the company, we were an SMB platform focused on these small monthly subscriptions. One of the big strategic moves, uh, focuses that we did was to focus on digital marketing agencies and to really plant our flag. It's part of building up how we change our product and also how we change our brand. The key things that agencies are looking for are very similar to what brands are looking for with the addition of how can they work with our account management team if they don't want to manage the self-service platform by themselves. So we have external professional services to really just integrate easily into our system. How can you manage content for all of the different types of verticals that they focus on? Can our subject matter expertise and quality of our writing outcompete anything that they're doing currently? And then the white label platform, which is really important piece of their puzzle. They Most of them wanted to look like themselves and not like us. And so we have to make that look tip top as the end part of our platform. Now we're at another wave of innovating in our strategy. So that example of the 17,000 uh, article client in three months feels like it's a new wave that we need to build our platform towards and still work in our market on. So if it turns out that this is the one of the top ways that new companies are going to try to stand out by building a ton of content, building a huge moat really quickly. We need to be able to deliver that. Then we need to build our product around that as a next wave. And we need to build our sales and marketing strategy to target those companies too. It's highly likely that at some point in the future, what made your company money in the past will stop making money. The world changes, the competition evolves, technology enables new capabilities. New products replace old products. New services will replace old services. New channels emerge and old ones stop working as well. Your best fit customers change, new buyers will appear and old ones stop buying. 
This has happened to a lot of companies you know, like IBM, Intel, Apple, Samsung, Nokia, etc. You need to figure out when to switch focus. Disrupt yourself before others do. Cook up your next competitive advantage while milking your existing one. The age of sustainable competitive advantage is over. It's all transient. So as you're thinking about growing your revenue uh, year over year, let's assume looking at 2025, three years from now, what's the strategy to win here? So we're on a nice path of growing 50% per year bootstrapped. The big part of our strategy is we're finally at the point of, of entertaining, raising investments to move faster on our product. The big kicks to winning is really to make the flywheel work better and better at every phase. So for our tech-enabled services, you're still using people at each level in order to figure out the solutions, and then you build the product around them to deliver it more efficiently at scale, higher margins, and with more quality. The vision for me is to build a true marketplace dynamics system that delivers this high-level quality with minimal human involvement for higher quality that nobody else can do. And we think we have that lead right now, but to build it into a next-gen platform I think is really exciting. And then the question is, if we build this right, will this work in other verticals outside of content as ways to manage freelancer marketplace services? And I think it does. The second that we start looking at other verticals about how this may be exciting is really where... We're making a big, a big change kind of society-wise in the freelancer economy. Over time, as categories mature, everything becomes commoditized. Your business becomes a commodity. Commodity in the sense that it's fungible, quite easily replaced by another competing business. Each brand draws on the same user needs and works to meet those needs. The more mature the category, the more homogenous it becomes. All competitors will eventually look alike, talk the same, and in fact, be pretty much the same. The future will be like one of those science fiction movies where everybody wears the same uniform and has the same haircut. Very few can keep on winning on better for years on end. Make a deliberate effort to not be like others. Break the convention. Bake differentiation into your DNA. The only strategies worth investing in are those that pass the can't, won't test. If you think about the competitive landscape, ask yourself two questions. One, what is something you can do that your competitors can't Two, what is something you can do that your competitors won't do? If you think about it, there are very few things that well-resourced competitors won't be able to replicate if they want to. You need to build up some serious modes to succeed there. But you can make brand choices that competitors won't have the guts to follow. You can be more radical. If your strategy doesn't pass the can't, won't test, you will be finding a battle that is headed toward commoditization. Here's the world's top strategy thinker, Roger Martin, explaining what makes a good strategy. Well, I think about strategy as a, a set of choices that enables you to invest in a given place to win, whether that's geography or business or whatever. So it's that set of choices. And what do I mean by winning? I mean, in the field of play that you choose, you have a better value proposition for the customers in that space than anybody else. And a good strategy is one that has a logic that holds up when you put it into action. You do get a better position where you've chosen to play than any competitor. It's probably likely that commoditization is, is already happening and, and coming stronger at you. How are you preparing for it? Uh, are you consciously building any moats? So we think we are building a moat. It's really hard 
We need to have better quality. We need to have an easier to use platform, the most friction-free platform possible, and the most scalability, plus the right amount of add-ons. So we're kind of the, the one-stop shop. There's a lot of pieces that you need in order to deliver good content, which we need to build out as well. Don't test us on one dang piece of content. That is not a test. Test us on how do you write 100 quality pieces of content in a month, because that's the place where nobody else, we don't. We think we outcompete everybody else. That's our eyes on the prize, and we always we are always living in fear of being compared to anybody else at the, the quality level we deliver. So, what are the three key strategies Verbly has developed to guide their success? One, they honed in on a key high-profit market segment. When I first took over the company, we were an SMB platform focused on these small monthly subscriptions. One of the big strategic focuses that we did was to focus on digital marketing agencies and to really plant our flag. It's part of building up how we change our product and also how we change our brand. Two, they understand that onlyness. What is something only they can deliver? Don't test us on one piece of content. That is not a test. Test us on how do you write 100 quality pieces of content in a month, because that's the place where nobody else, we don't. We think we outcompete everybody else. Three, they know that in a space as saturated as content creation, their quality needs to be top-notch if they want to stay competitive. One way we're trying to stand out is to attract the best talent and make this the best place for the writers to go. One last takeaway from Steve. The concept of quality is a really hard one. It's super intangible and it really depends on your view of, of content quality. We need to be better than what you're expecting. So we need to be better than your alternate options. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lyon. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>